1: With this letter, I'm introducing Phoebe to you. She is our sister in the Christian faith and a deacon of the church in the city of Sincrea. Give her a Christian welcome that shows you are God's holy people. Provide her with anything she may need because she has provided help to many people, including me.
0: Romans, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, God's Word Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very grateful for the chance to be with you today. For several weeks now, we've been working on a series we call Paul's Places. This is our 12th episode in this series, and we are concluding it today. Anyone who has missed any of the previous lessons can find them on our website, crystalseabooks.com, or on their favorite podcast app. We wanted to do this series for one simple reason, to help people understand that the New Testament documents are historically reliable. In our last episode, we began to summarize some of the major points that we've covered during the series, and we want to conclude that summary today. To do that, in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro, the author of a number of great Christian books and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D.? What's on your mind as we close out our series on Paul's Places?
2: Well, I'd also like to start out by thanking our listeners for joining us here today, whether they're on the broadcast or the podcast. As you said, the reason that we wanted to do this Paul's Places series was to help listeners think a little more deeply about the books that comprise our New Testament. You know, if you open just about any internet news site these days, a lot of times you're going to see a headline that says something like, quote, facts about the most famous Bible myths, or, quote, the truth about Jesus' miracles, or something similar. The headline of the article is basically going to betray a great deal of skepticism about the actual truth of the Bible skepticism about the bible both the old and new testaments that's pretty much the stock and trade for a great many peddlers of clickbait these days well here's a question most people rarely think about why why do those clickbait peddlers display so much interest in the bible i mean why do so many internet headlines claim to reveal a new quote truth or quote fact about jesus or about the bible or about a famous Bible story or character. I mean, let's face it, in our world, there are a lot of books that one group or another claims that that book is the Word of God. But you never see the names of those other books being used in the headlines. There are no headlines that say, What is the truth about the Bhagavad Gita? Or, Where does the Book of Mormon get it wrong?
0: I suppose that in the internet headline, people would tell you that the Bible is the book that is most widely known in our culture, so it's the book that sparks the most general interest. In other words, they would tell us that these headlines and banners are primarily a cultural phenomenon based on the historical basis for Western culture.
2: And I would agree that part of the reason those kinds of headlines are featured is because of the proliferation of the Bible in Western culture. But you also don't see any headlines that are more generalized, like how do we know that all books claiming to be God's word are false? You don't see that, no. What you see in our culture in this day and age are repeated and determined attacks that are aimed specifically at the reliability of the Bible. To deny that the Bible is the primary, almost the singular focus of the skeptic's wrath in our culture, in our day and age, that's just trying to deny a fact that is very easily confirmable.
0: So, why do you think the Bible is, as you say, the primary, if not the singular focus of the skeptic's wrath? And what does that have to do with Paul's places?
2: Well, the reason the skeptics, the critics, and others focus on the Bible is because they know that the Bible is God's Word. You know, other books that claim to be God's Word, they don't carry any peril for the skeptic or the critic in our culture. But just as in the Garden of Eden, the authentic Word of God, the Bible, that is always a threat to God's enemies and rebels.
0: You're thinking about the serpent's very first words to Eve, aren't you? Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 actually records the second instance of a creature speaking in the Bible. The snake was more clever than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He asked the woman, Did God really say you must never eat the fruit of any tree in the garden? Before those words were spoken, the only other creature we heard speaking was in Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 when Adam said, quote, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be named woman because she was taken from man." Unquote. Both of those are from the God's Word translation.
2: Yes. The very first thing that Satan did when he confronted Eve, and Satan was in the guise of the serpent at the time, was to cast doubt on God's word.
0: So really, the internet headlines are just continuing a pattern that has been going on for over 6,000 years. Yes.
2: And in that odd, ironic, strange kind of way, this widespread attempt to cast doubt on the reliability of God's word That's just a very strange form of confirmation that the Bible is God's Word. The skeptics and the critics recognize, just as Satan did, God's Word. Because otherwise, they wouldn't spend so much time attempting to debunk or cast doubt on a book. A book that is actually, as they would say, as the critic asserts, just a book of myths and fairy tales.
0: Well, if it's true... You don't see any internet banners saying, quote, the true details of Grimm's fairy tales, unquote, or, quote, where the Norse legends got it wrong, unquote. But still, wouldn't the critics say that the reason they have to spend all that energy correcting the misinformation in the Bible is that the Bible has so many people who believe it, and that is what offends them that the Bible has so many people who believe in something that can't possibly be true.
2: And I'm sure they would say that. But the next legitimate question that the critic must answer is, well, what is it in the Bible that isn't true? I mean, when you ask that question, what is it in the Bible that isn't true, All too often what you get are vague and very generalized dismissals such as someone saying, well, there is no evidence in the historical records that a large Hebrew exodus from Egypt ever took place. Or something even more common, quote, science has shown that the Bible is full of misinformation. Well, that is actually a form of fallacious argumentation that is called elephant hurling. And when you look closely at the Bible critics' assertions, You're going to find out that the sky is so full of elephants that the sky looks gray instead of blue.
0: Okay, that's an image I'm not sure I want to hold. I'm almost expecting a pachyderm to start falling into the studio right about now. What is elephant hurling?
2: Elephant hurling is an argumentative approach of throwing out a broad generalization and then making it seem like that generalization is backed by large and weighty bodies of evidence. The idea is to suggest that there is so much evidence out there that is in favor of the hurler's point that it is useless to try and rebut it. Elephant hurlers say things like, quote, archaeologists have never found anything that confirms something from the Bible, or more commonly, quote, All scientists agree that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. The elephant hurlers want to quash dissent by making it appear that all reasonable people must agree with them or appear foolish. But more often than not, the elephant hurler never even bothers to determine whether the evidence that they're hurling actually supports their contention. They will just hurl about purported studies or volumes or books or whatever under the guise that all of this supports their assertion, regardless of whether what they're hurling actually does.
0: And when it comes to criticizing the Bible, you do find a lot of elephants being hurled, especially when it comes to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The critics will say things like, Almost all historians say that there is no evidence outside the Bible that Jesus ever lived at all, unquote. Or, quote, scientists will tell you that if people claim to have seen Jesus after he died, it was a form of mass delusion, unquote. Elephant hurlers don't delve into the details because the real world gets a lot more confusing when you look at the details. That's one of the reasons we do series like Paul's Places to get into the details. The more you look into details, the more you find out that the elephant hurlers don't have nearly as much evidence on their side as they would like you to believe. And when it comes to the Bible, the details overwhelmingly validate the Bible's reliability.
2: Yes. So when you get beyond all the elephant hurling, we come back to the original point. The reason that there are so many stories and articles all over the internet and the news and our popular culture about the Bible is because the Bible is a book that communicates truth. And unfortunately, our culture finds much of the truth of the Bible very disagreeable. Most of the supposed analysis that is directed at the Bible or is about the Bible is really just disguised animosity. The Bible's truth is an implied rejection of a very great deal of our contemporary culture.
0: And the classic enemies of an authentic believer are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, the world around us right now expresses its enmity less by direct attack than by casting subtle doubts. People might resist or be alarmed by an outright attack. But compromise, by degree, is far less likely to encounter resistance. But even subtle pushback is still pushback. And if the Bible were really just a collection of myths and fairy tales, why would so much pushback be necessary? The critics push back because no matter how much they dislike it, the truth of the Bible continues to weigh upon their consciences. As Paul puts it in the book of Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 21, quote, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they didn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. That's the New Living Translation. And the critics may
2: deny that God exists, but even their denials betray their awareness of God's presence. You know, no one publishes articles pushing back on Grimm's fairy tales or ancient pagan mythologies because those things are self-evidently not true. They are not actual portrayals of reality. No one spends any time pushing back on Norse mythology, but they spend an enormous amount of time telling us that the Bible falls in that same category of myth and fable. But if that were true, well, why do they treat the Bible so differently? They spend time pushing against the Bible precisely because they know the Bible is true. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. The Bible is an accurate reflection of reality. It is an accurate reflection of human and world history. It is an accurate reflection of the problems that are associated with living in a fallen creation. It is an accurate reflection of man's true awareness of ultimate judgment and it is an accurate reflection of God's sovereignty over all the created order. So the critics must try to dismiss it. It's just that the strategies that critics employ for trying to dismiss the Bible, more often than not, simply wind up pointing back to the fact that the Bible is true.
0: Most of the criticism of the Bible is based either on faulty facts or faulty analysis. For instance you often hear the criticism that God cannot exist because evil exists. It's usually framed something like this, quote, A good God who is all-powerful would not permit evil to exist. So, God is either not all-powerful because he cannot stop evil, or God is not good because he could prevent the existence of evil, but he chooses not to, unquote. But, and this is a huge but, the criticism presumes that there is a real difference between good and evil. After all, you can't complain about God allowing evil to exist if there's no difference between good and evil. But, without God, how would such a distinction between good and evil be established? When we say that slavery and child pornography are evil, we do not mean that we simply do not like them. That's a matter of preference. We do not mean that they are inconvenient. That would be a matter of personal choice. When we say they are evil, and they are, we mean they violate an objective standard that should govern human behavior because there is a real difference between actions that are good and those that are evil. But the existence of an objective standard requires the existence of a standard maker who has the legal capacity to set standards and who can judge and hold accountable. Violators. So, the person complaining that the existence of evil means that God can't exist rebuts their own basic premise. They wind up providing an affirmative demonstration that God must exist.
2: So, all this is why we did this Paul's Places series. The elephant hurler's arguments lose their power when you start looking at those flying pachyderms more closely. When those pachyderms pass overhead at a distance, well, They may look imposing, but once you examine them carefully, you find out that they were just gray balloons filled with hot air. You quickly find out that rather than there being no solid historical evidence for Christ's life and His death and resurrection, you find out that there is an abundance of evidence for Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And you find out that the Bible, rather than being filled with myths and fairy tales, you find out that when the Bible addresses matters of human history, The history the Bible contains is reliable, reasonable, and verifiable. You know, it's been said that one of the strongest lines of evidence for the reality of the resurrection was the appearance of and the stickiness of the belief in the resurrection after Jesus' earthly life and ministry.
0: What you're saying is that prior to Jesus' life, there was no widespread belief in physical resurrection, even among the Jews. In fact, At the time that Jesus lived, the Jewish sect that controlled their governing body outright rejected the entire concept of life after death.
2: Yes. During Jesus' lifetime, the Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin, the Jews' governing council. And the Sadducees outright rejected most of the supernatural aspects of the Jewish faith, such as the existence of angels. And the Sadducees firmly rejected the idea of life after death, Now, the Sadducees' chief opponents, the Pharisees, did accept the idea of life after death, but even the Pharisees had a very poorly defined concept of what such life might have looked like. None of the major Jewish beliefs held to the idea of a physical resurrection of a body. And that's one of the reasons that even Jesus' own disciples had such a hard time with what he told them about what was going to happen to him.
0: Neither the disciples, the common people, nor the Jewish leaders ever envisioned their Messiah dying, much less coming back to life after death. The general idea of the Messiah was that he would be a conquering hero who would crush Israel's armies militarily and establish a golden era of Jewish prosperity. So even though the disciples had heard Jesus say that he was indeed the Messiah, they had no real concept of what he was talking about. The disciples thought Jesus was going to defeat the Romans. Jesus knew that he was going to defeat a much more difficult enemy, death itself. Right.
2: So it's easy to see why the disciples were so devastated when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus' death wasn't just the death of a man to them. It was the death of an entire set of hopes and dreams.
0: If they had believed that Jesus would die on Friday only to rise on Sunday, they would not have exhibited the utter devastation that they did. They might have been grieved over what Jesus had endured, but they would have said to themselves, But once Sunday arrives, he'll be back. But they didn't believe Jesus was coming back. That illustrates that the Jews simply did not have physical resurrection as a plank of their belief system and even after Jesus returned, they still had a hard time integrating the enormity of what had happened into their thinking. We think of Thomas saying, quote, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, unquote. That's from the Gospel of John chapter 20 verse 25 in the New International Version.
2: Yes, so, this reluctance to believe wasn't just present among the disciples. It was present among all of the Jews, and of course, among the larger culture surrounding them. Paul, back when he was still called Saul, he shared in that disbelief. And it wasn't until Paul personally encountered the risen Christ that Paul's life changed so dramatically. And it was in that culture of disbelief in a physical resurrection that Paul then had to go out and start ministering to it and testifying to it.
0: But minister and testify he did. As did the rest of the apostles and the first converts, many of whom had also seen the resurrected Jesus. Any evidence of the reality of Jesus' resurrection is that those early believers were so convicted that despite persecution and martyrdom, they held to that belief for the rest of their lives. Church tradition tells us the original 11 disciples who believed only John was not martyred, and even John endured exile and maltreatment for maintaining his conviction. Judas, of course, who had betrayed Jesus, committed suicide before the resurrection.
2: You know, it's been said that the biggest loser of all time was Judas Iscariot. Not because Judas betrayed Jesus. I mean, heck, even Peter denied Jesus when he counted most. But Judas is the biggest loser of all time, because Judas hung himself without waiting for Sunday and the resurrection. If Judas had waited till Sunday and the resurrection, Judas, along with the other disciples, would have seen the risen Christ, and the risen Christ would have forgiven him.
0: Now that is eternal death. Judas was less than 36 hours away from obtaining eternal glory. Instead... He is condemned for all time. That'll give you something to think about.
2: And in an odd way, we live in an era not too dissimilar to the era in which the Apostle Paul conducted his ministry. We live in an era when skepticism about religion abounds. In fact, we live in an age where skepticism about truth is widespread. And just about every major institution in the United States has become hostile to Christianity, and government power has been used to suppress both Christians and the Christian faith. You know, in America, we worship, quote, the separation of church and state far more than we actually worship in church.
0: The phrase separation of church and state has become a slogan and rallying cry of American officialdom to mean Christian influence must be eradicated from the public square. Yet, ironically, When Thomas Jefferson used the phrase Wall of Separation Between the Church and State in his letter to the Danbury Baptist Association in 1802, Jefferson's point was that the government should stay out of the church's business, not vice versa. Jefferson had held church services in the White House. He would have never recognized the application of the phrase as it manifested itself in the 20th and the 21st centuries.
2: Yes. So in an odd way, the Apostle Paul's epistles take on a unique role for Christians in the Western world today. Actually, they take on a dual role. The content of the Pauline epistles shows us they are authentic letters written to groups of believers living in and around the Roman Empire in the last half of the 1st century AD. The unique characteristics of the Pauline epistles demonstrate that, and they confirm both their authenticity and their historicity. The Pauline epistles are always both historically appropriate and historically informative. The Pauline epistles have always been that, and they have always done that, and they will always play that role.
0: The Pauline epistles are no less God's word than any other part of the Bible. They are God's communication to man in the same way as the law that God gave to Moses. And it was Jesus himself who said, quote, for truly I tell you until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished unquote. that's from Matthew chapter 5 verse 18 from the New International version
2: But the Pauline epistles can have a very special meaning for believers today because we testify to a culture that is very similar to many parts of the culture that was present in the Roman Empire. The city of Corinth was economically vibrant, but it was morally degenerate. I mean, the city of Corinth, they literally worshipped the god of sex and pleasure. The believers in the region of Galatia were being harassed by agitators who wanted to pervert the simplicity of the gospel by adding all these extraneous requirements. Well, how often in the contemporary church have we heard legalists who have insisted that you cannot be a real Christian unless you follow a particular set of rules, but none of those rules are actually present in Scripture. Well, the church in Colossae, that was located in a region where mystery religions were flourishing, and the practitioners of those religions, the mystery religions, claimed to have unique insights that were available only to them only to the practitioners of that mystery religion. Well, in our culture, there's been a tsunami of groups or people who have claimed to possess codes or secrets or special revelations that communicate the hidden wisdom of the universe or tell us, quote, what actually happened to Jesus or his disciples.
0: What you're saying is that beside the Pauline epistles containing abundant evidence of being true, the truth they communicate is more important than ever to current believers. In a culture where widespread consensus on the truth Christianity has been abandoned, we can learn from Apostle Paul's approach to witnessing. Paul witnessed in a culture that bears striking similarities to our own. In the Roman Empire, emperor worship was mandated. In our own culture, we have so elevated our opinion of ourselves and the cultural devices we have created that we are perilously close to an identical idolatry. The Romans tried to create gods out of men. And we have created gods out of various ideologies and purportedly scientific concepts.
2: Exactly. The gospel's power is in its truth. The simple truth is that Jesus died on a cross and paid the price for our sins. That's a simple historical fact that has profound spiritual implications. Well, if all Jesus had done was die, we would have no hope. But it is also a simple historical fact that Jesus walked, on his own power, out of a sealed tomb, proceeded to witness to hundreds of people, and ultimately ascended back to his eternal throne. Well, that simple historical fact is the most profound spiritual truth of all time.
0: Well, that's a good place to end for today. This Paul's Places series is all about helping people see more clearly that the Pauline Epistles, the letters contained in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, are exactly what they claim to be. They are letters written by one of Christianity's first evangelical preachers to convey important truths to those who had begun to place their trust in Jesus. Let's close with a prayer, as we always do. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our friends who have yet to begin a saving relationship with Christ Jesus
1: A prayer for the spiritually lost wondrous and perfect father we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope in you there is blessed assurance without you The shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away and we are grieved to see all about us, people we know whose life foundations are crumbling." We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, Please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in his name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where
2: we're not perfect, but our boss is.